Hi, and welcome to another edition of Manifesting Melchizedek. We now join Pastor David Vaught teaching at Abundant Life Ministries in Bella Vista, Arkansas. This is part one of a new study. We've been apart for quite some time, four months, a third of a year, due to this COVID-19 pandemic. During this time, I know that you have each been hearing from the Lord about specific things related to your personal growth in Him, or at least I hope you have. I assume you've been hearing from Him, because that's the way He's been dealing with me during this pandemic time. In December, He began to impart a new study into my heart, which we will start to look at today. You know, at first, the things He was teaching me seemed to be unrelated You know, it was just a little bit here and then a little bit there, just pieces and parts. But yesterday morning, he solidified this study under a banner by taking me to a specific scripture in 2 Peter. This scripture passage is from Peter's salutation to the church. In his second epistle, this is chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, and we are reading from the New King James Version. The Spirit writes through Peter, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I like that. He has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these, through these promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. So this is our key scripture for this study, which I have named Partakers of the Divine Nature, and this is part one. So what does it mean to be partakers of the divine nature? In the original language, it doesn't say partakers of the divine nature. It just simply says partakers of divine nature. But we have learned and we know that there is only one divine nature, and that is his nature, the divine nature of God our Father. But again, what does it mean to partake of his divine nature? What does it mean when Scripture says we may be partakers of his divine nature? You know, when I was growing up, we usually described partaking in relation to eating a meal. So I grew up thinking that partake meant to eat. That's the way my family talked. You know, let's let's partake of this. And they did like to talk about food quite a bit. Just ask my mom. Let's look at the meaning of the words partakers of the divine nature to establish a solid understanding about this subject. First, you know, the word partakers comes from a Greek word, koinonos. Koinonos. It means a sharer or an associate. So since this verb means to be a sharer or an associate, our key verse says we may be someone who shares in the divine nature we may become a sharer of the divine nature of God. Now, the tense of this verb to partake in the Greek is quite rare and unusual, or at least it seemed to me. 
In fact, during my studies, this is the first time I can recall encountering a word with the verb tense called middle deponent voice, second aorist subjunctive. That's a mouthful of grammar for you right there. That's enough grammar to make your head spin and your eyes roll, right? So I have tried to simplify the meaning of this verb tense for us. This word describes an action which includes the possibility or the potential of partaking or sharing in God's divine nature. And it is an action that requires participation on God's part and on our part. In other words, the idea of sharing or partaking in this verse implies an active partnership in the process. It's not something that our Father God forces on us as a partaker, and neither is it something that we can achieve or accomplish on our own. That's what the middle deponent part of the verb tense means. You cannot achieve the divine nature by yourself, and God doesn't force it on you. It requires the active participation and partnership of both you and God to share in the divine nature. And because it is a second aorist verb, we know that it is irrespective of time or can even occur outside of any time boundaries. So then, according to this verse, there is a partnered sharing of something called the divine nature. Now, what is the divine nature? You know, this is the only verse in Scripture where the two words divine and nature occur together. And yet Peter says that we have been given exceedingly great and precious promises through which we may be partakers of that divine nature. So what is the divine nature? What does that mean? The two Greek words translated here as divine nature are theos phusis. The first word, theos, sounds similar to theos, which we know is the Greek noun translated as God in our Bible. It means godlike. If you use a Strong's Concordance, it's G2304, godlike. And it comes from the noun theos, which is the supreme divinity, God or the Godhead. Now, the second word translated as nature is the word phusis. Phusis means growth or production. In your Strong's Concordance, it's G5449. It also means lineal descent, the sum of a person's innate properties and powers. And it comes from the verb fuo, which means to beget, to bring forth, to produce, to be born, to spring up or to grow. So putting these two definitions together, we see that when the Spirit says divine nature, he is saying inherited godlike innate properties and powers, or the production and sum of innate properties and powers caused by a direct lineal descent from godhood. Well, to me, that sounds quite a bit like God's plan and purpose, which was, let us make mankind in our image and after our likeness. So looking at our key verses for this study, the Holy Spirit writes through Peter that through exceedingly great and precious promises, we may obtain the divine nature, or God's own innate properties and powers. So I wonder how many of us know which scriptures 
contain the exceedingly great and precious promises. Those that describe our obtaining this divine nature or the innate powers and properties of our Father God. It would be easier, you know, if there was some place in Scripture where God said, here's the list of all of my promises about inheriting my divine nature. But I believe he expects us to search these things out and then claim his promises for ourselves. Why? Because as we learned from understanding the meaning of the words, partaking of the divine nature implies a partnership between us and our Father. It's a partnership in the learning process. It's a joint exercise requiring our participation, and it leads us into the realm where it becomes possible to obtain the oneness with God that reveals His innate powers and properties within us, where He can manifest Himself through us. So let's begin to look at some of these exceedingly great and precious promises and thereby prayfully increase our understanding of what it means to be a partaker of the divine nature. Now, it's also interesting that the Holy Spirit calls these promises exceedingly great in Peter's letter to the church. Exceedingly great. You know, the meaning of exceedingly great is the superlative great. It actually means the greatest or the most great. We would say the greatest. These things that are superlative are of the highest order. It means there are no greater promises. They are the highest. They're not high promises or higher promises. They are the highest, the greatest promises. And the word translated precious also means the superlative, the most valuable, the most costly, the most esteemed, or held in the highest honor. So the Spirit is saying that these are the greatest and the most special promises from God, our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. There are no greater promises than these, and these greatest, most precious promises are about the possibility of revealing the divine nature of God in us. These promises are all about the potential for him to reveal his power and his properties in us through a cooperative effort. And so with that in mind, let's dig into these most special of promises. You know, one of the things that the Spirit impressed upon me as he was pouring this into my heart is that These greatest promises must apply to the whole person in each of us. The whole person. These most precious promises apply to every part of you, and they apply to every part of me. They must apply to every part of the body of Christ equally. But because it is a cooperative action between us and God, the outcome or revealed result will always be in direct proportion to the effort we individually apply to the processing. We can't put in any more or any less than God does, because he always meets us at the heart in the middle of our effort. Here's the way Jesus taught this truth in Mark. This is in Mark chapter 4 and verse 24, again reading from the New King James Version. Then he said to them, Take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. In other words, what you put into this partnership of partaking, what you put into it is directly proportional to what you will get out of it. 
And the Father will always meet you in the middle and give you more. Now, as I said, the Spirit impressed upon me that the revelation of these promises must be applied to the whole person. And we've learned many times before that we are triune beings. We are triune, meaning we are composed of three fundamental parts or spheres. And we name these three parts the body, the soul, and the spirit. Now, we didn't just make that up. This is a truth found in Scripture. And just as importantly, we have a witness in our spirit concerning this threefold aspect of our being. The Holy Spirit writing through the Apostle Paul described our triune being in many places. But as he was closing his first letter to the church at Thessalonica, he reiterates the composition of our being. This is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. He writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word translated whole here means complete in all its parts. Mankind, you see, is composed completely of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. Now, you know, three parts is enough for me, but there are some people that further divide even these three parts into an additional three parts. In other words, they say that the soul has three parts, the body has three parts, and the spirit has three parts. For example, in our studies, we frequently speak about the three parts of the soul being the mind, the will, and the emotions. Now, I suppose if the soul is divided into three parts, then the body and spirit could be also, although I don't know how it really applies to the body. For example, in yoga and in some Eastern cultures, they believe we have three aspects of our body. They say our body includes a physical body, a casual body, and an astral body. Now, I'm not a follower of Eastern culture or yoga, so I don't pretend to know what a casual or an astral body may be. And I'm not certain how it became an Eastern or yoga culture since the first person to write about the astral body was the Greek philosopher Plato. But in some ways, the idea of our bodies having three parts has become part of yoga exercise and the culture of Tibetan monks and other Eastern cultures and so forth. Of course, Scripture speaks about physical, spiritual, and celestial bodies, so there may be some truth hidden there. But Scripture also talks about three aspects of the Spirit, which we call the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Scripture also speaks about the center of our being, which it calls the heart, or the cardia in Greek. Now, this word references the point where our three parts join or interface with each other. In other words, it is in the heart where our spirit, soul, and body come together. It seems to be a place or a point where the spirit can act upon the soul, and the soul can act upon the body. We've discussed the saving of our soul by the interactions of the Spirit in the past. And we also recognize that it is our soul, our mind, our will and emotions, which causes our body to react to thoughts, desires, and feelings. But for this study, leaving all the other parts out, we will discuss the greatest and most precious promises as they relate simply to our soul, our body, and our spirit. I want to draw your attention momentarily to a thought expressed in our key scripture. In verse 3 of these scriptures, the Holy Spirit says that it is through knowledge of him, 
knowledge of him who has called us, that we have been given these promises. So I have a question for you. What is knowledge? It's knowing something, right? It's the storage or the storehouse of knowing, of what we know. The English definition of knowledge is facts, information, and skills acquired by a person through experience or education. It's also the theoretical or practical understanding of a subject. So according to our key scripture, it is through our knowledge of him that he has given us these greatest and most precious promises. The Greek word translated as knowledge here is epigonosko, which we have learned means full knowledge or complete knowledge. Epi means more or above, and gnosko means knowledge. So epigonosko is the fullness of knowledge, the replete knowledge. In other words, the revelation of these promises in us is directly proportional to our full knowledge and understanding of him. So, another question, where is knowledge stored? It's primarily in our mind, which we said is in our soul. It's a part of our soul, right? But we know that there is also spirit knowledge, right? There is knowledge that comes only from the Holy Spirit, and it feeds directly into our soul. We call it having a word of knowledge. Did you know that there is also body knowledge? Sometimes we call it muscle knowledge or muscle memory in the natural. It's a knowledge of how we do something with our bodies by habit or by rote. For example, my wife Debbie knows how to knit and crochet without thinking about how to make each individual stitch because she has done it so often that it has become body knowledge for her. Touch typing is another type of body knowledge, you know, typing without looking at at your fingers and where the keys are. When I'm typing my notes or writing computer programs, I don't think about where each letter is located on the keyboard. My body remembers where the keys are located, and the words just flow from my mind into the machine because of body memory. I'm certain each of you can think of something you do automatically that is based on body memory, such as driving a car or golfing or ping pong or even walking. But since knowledge is referenced in our key scripture, The first place we are going to search for these exceedingly great promises is in reference to our mind. In the 12th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, he describes something that happens in our mind that affects our entire being. Let's read that. This is Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 and 2 in the New King James Version. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world. That should be the word age. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed. Listen, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The Spirit says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. The word transformed or transfigured in this verse represents a change. It's it's a renewing that occurs in our mind, which then triggers a subsequent change 
and our bodies also. That's why he says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. But recall that this renewing is not something that we do by ourselves. Remember, it's a partnership. The middle deponent part of that verb implies that it's a joint action. This must occur in partnership with the Holy Spirit of Christ dwelling in us. And this promise of transfiguration further strengthens the understanding that the process requires participation from us and God. You know, I consider the transfiguration of our bodies to be like his glorious body, to be one of the greatest and most precious promises. Especially as I've gotten older and this body continues to show signs of, you know, wearing out. Paul describes the details of this great promise in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, where it says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things, to himself. This is one of the greatest and most precious promises along our journey toward the fulfillment of his divine nature in us. And it begins in our mind as we approach the full knowledge of him. Amen? Well, that's where we're going to stop today because we need to spend a little bit of time thinking about these greatest promises, these most precious promises that lead us to sharing in the divine nature. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about our church or Abundant Life Ministries, or if you have any questions about today's message, please email us at abundant underscore life at att.net. Again, that's abundant underscore life at att.net. Until next time, we pray grace and peace for you in all things in Christ Jesus. Goodbye.